0: And I invite you to take out your Bibles opening once again to Revelation chapter 22. This morning, Revelation chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 21 once again this morning. The good news of the gospel is that our great and holy and glorious God who dwells in unapproachable light, who cannot dwell because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, who cannot dwell with anything that is tainted by sin. That disqualifies every one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This God who in sheer holiness has every right to punish every one of us eternally in an eternal hell because of our sin and rebellion against His lordship and His rule over our life, that God, only by grace, only by mercy, an attribute that belongs to Him alone, has made a way of salvation from the death we all deserve through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's used the law, the Ten Commandments, to show us There is absolutely nothing we can do to fix ourselves, to earn His favor, to be able to return to a place of such infinite holiness as where He is. There's nothing. There is but one way that He is made through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the God-man, born of the Virgin Mary, who came and lived the life we should have lived, meaning He kept the commandments of God perfectly. What we could not do, He has done for us. And yet, not only that, because He kept the law perfectly, He didn't deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Well, He didn't sin, yet He also went to the cross and died. Why? Why did Christ die? Because He came to live and to die as our representative, as one of us in human flesh. And he kept the law for the people of God. But also, there's a death problem that has to be taken care of. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die for sin. And he went to the cross and died the death we deserve to die. So that for all who recognize God's holiness and recognize in light of that their sinfulness and that there is an eternal gulf that cannot be bridged, except by the God-man who came and bridged that gulf through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where even right now today, as we meet together, the King is on his throne at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Dad, I know they don't deserve our presence down there, but those are your children. I lived for them. I died for them. That's Covenant Life Church. That's the people down there. We've made the way for them. He's constantly interceding for us. And that's what we live upon. We gather together. Our hope is Christ. Our joy is Christ. Our hope of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, that God would actually come down and meet with us is solely in Christ alone. All I have is Christ, and all I need is Christ. He is all. And the book of Revelation has been helping us to see that ongoing picture of Christ enthroned, sovereign over all at the right hand of the Father, and His ongoing work of redemption for us until He returns. And now we've made our way into the conclusion of the book of Revelation. I hope we're seeing how it all ties together the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, how it's all one story. And the book of Revelation is showing us just the the finished work of Christ, of our redemption, his intercessory work until he returns. And now we've seen his return bringing his people to him forever. And the book closes now with this conclusion. It's a letter that's being written to the people of God shepherding us, teaching us, imploring us to remain faithful to this one. Let's read together the concluding verses once again. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. John writes, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star and the spirit and the bride say come and let those who hear say come and let the one who is thirsty come, let, he, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of his prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And he who testifies to the things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we come to you this morning. This is your word to your churches. Your word to us this morning. Like a great shepherd, Father, you continue to shepherd your sheep even through this tumultuous era that we live in, the church age, as we live between Christ's ascension and his return. Uh, The world that we live in that is in opposition to you, that persecutes your people, your church in various ways, where the flesh continue, it's not yet glorified as it will be, and we're tempted to, to turn away from you to other things, to other idols. Father, thank you for your word and the reminder to us this morning that this vision of Christ enthroned is is a means of grace to us and it is not an option for us not to utilize it. Father, we must be about keeping the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now help us this day. Send your Spirit to help us to see not just the truth of your Word, but to also expose the reality of our own hearts, that we may see, do our lives line up with what your Word exhorts us to do and to be? Send your Spirit to grant us grace to, to when we see that, not to try to excuse it or to come up with reasons why, but just simply to call it what it is, to repent and to return to Jesus Christ. Father, help us this day. I can't do these things. I can't do them in my own heart, let alone for somebody else. We need Christ. We need the Spirit of Christ with us. Speak to us through your word. Open our eyes to behold the wonder of Christ and make it our heart's desire to obey, to live every day in light of this glorious gospel truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ, both on the cross, in his resurrection, but also on his throne above. Help us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said last week in kind of the introduction to this conclusion of the book of Revelation, what we find here in this concluding, these concluding verses are a series of exhortations, directions, instructions, if you will, from God himself. He's already laid out the vision of Christ enthroned, and the text concludes with, now here I want to make sure you've understood what this vision is about. Here's what I expect you to do with this vision. And we said last week that we encounter no less than five exhortations, five of them. The first of them is found in verses 6 and 7, which we looked at last week. The second one is in verses 8 through 10. We'll look at that this morning. The third one is verses 11 and 12. We'll look at that as well. And the fourth one comes in verses 13 through 17. And the fifth in verses 18 through 20. Now, if you didn't get all that, just stay with us. Be here this week and next week, and we will be going through them, and you'll see them individually. But there's five of them. We considered the first of these exhortations last week. And it can be summed up with Christ's words in chapter 22, verse 7, where he says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And what we saw last week is that the revelation of Jesus Christ is not a book to be speculated about the future. It is a book to be kept in the present, in the here, in the now. If the book of Revelation is nothing more than a, a, an answering a curiosity about future events, then we've not understood what the book of Revelation is about. It is a book to be kept by the seven churches in the first century and in every, by every church in every age until Jesus comes. It is a revelation, a picture of Christ that is to be obeyed. Revelation was written to promote obedience to Christ in this age. It was written to promote faithfulness to Jesus Christ until he returns. And so the great question we were left at last week and that we continue with this morning is this, brothers and sisters, are you keeping the prophecies of this book? It is not enough. To spend your time in the book of Revelation and to go home and pull open your charts and diagrams and graphs and try to determine, am I in line with your chart and graph? And is your charting graph right? Throw away the charts and graphs. It's not about that. It is about today. Are you living in light of this glorious revelation of your king on his throne, sovereignly ruling in over a world in which we live where we are tempted to tift, drift away from Jesus Christ? Are we keeping the prophecies of this book? Are we living according to the truths that have been revealed to us over the course of chapters 1 through 22, specifically the visions of chapters 4 through chapter 21? Are we gazing at this Christ continually and seeking to live upon those truths? Well, all of that was considered in our previous sermon. And so if we were to sum up that first exhortation, it is simply this. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who obeys this vision, keeping the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we transition this morning to at least the second exhortation, and we may not get past that. The second exhortation, if I were to sum it up, the exhortation is to holy living. And in fact, for the duration of this conclusion, I'm going to title these messages, Exhortations to Holiness. Because that's really what these exhortations are. Exhortation 2, 3, 4, and 5 is an exhortation to holiness. So consider this this morning, part 1. Exhortations to holiness. And the second exhortation we see here is to holy living. And it's found in the words that we see in chapter 22 the end of verse 9, worship God. This is the exhortation. Do you see it there? I'm not having to to get creative in in this sermon structure. I'm pulling it right out of the text. Exhortation 2 comes straight out of verse 9, worship God. We're going to call this worship God alone. If we were to take that exhortation and state it negatively, we might say that the book of Revelation for beginning to end is given to combat idolatry. The book of Revelation, in calling us to worship God alone, is given to help us to combat idolatry, worshiping something other than God alone. When we talk about idolatry, we're talking about the worship of created things. The worship of anything that God has created as opposed to worshiping the creator. Do you see the distinction? We have the creator, the uncreated creator of all things to whom all worship and glory and renown is due. Idolatry is when we take anything, no matter how evil or how good, anything that God has created or instituted or birthed for his glory and we make that central over him and idolatry is a problem not just for the believer uh, excuse me the unbeliever idolatry is a problem for everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ can we admit that to be true Even as we count ourselves among God's elect, among God's people by amazing grace, we have to come to grips with the reality that idolatry is a problem, not just for those who aren't in church on a Sunday, but it is a massive problem for every one of us this morning sitting right here. True Christians are tempted to commit idolatry. We are prone to worship things that are not God to worship things that God has created, to bow down before them. Now, maybe not literally, like we're, we're, we're literally bowing down and worshiping things, but in our hearts, we are tempted to bow our hearts to things and make them central. We're tempted to love God's creation more than we love Him. We're tempted and prone to trust in created things, to hope, in the created things, to make God's creation our primary source of entertainment, our primary source of joy. When you think about entertainment and recreation, do you think of going somewhere to visit something or do something? Or do you think of, is entertainment opening God's word and fixing your gaze upon him? See, I only bring this up to say temptation is a problem not just for them, it's for us as well. I know the answer to that question, and you do too. That is not how we tend to define entertainment and recreation, God. Rather, we compartmentalize our lives, and we have a spiritual time of seeking the Lord, and then outside of that comes life, entertainment, recreation, jobs, so on and so forth. That's idolatry. To try to compartmentalize our lives into, this is my God time, and then here's everything else. And listen, I'm trying to bring God with me. I want to think biblically about these things. But at the end of the day, I'm driven earnestly by the creation, something in creation, more than I'm earnestly seeking God. That's idolatry. And Scripture forbids it. We talked about the Ten Commandments this morning with our kids. Do you remember what the first one was? God commands us to love him more than anything else. I'll go back and read it straight from the text. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The first of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me clarify that. I think there's some confusion. I've had confusion with it. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That does not mean you shall have no other gods above me, but you can have gods below me. Do you see the distinction there? There is a way to try to understand that, that commandment that says, I just, of all the things you love, I want you to make sure you love me more than them. I must be supreme in your affections, but you can have other gods down here. They just have to come after me. That's not what that text says. You shall have no other gods before me means you have no other gods at all. No other god is uh, permitted to be set up in your heart. You are not allowed to have any other God before the face of God. That's what that word there, you shall have no other gods before me, before my face. When you come and you worship me, you're not allowed to kind of have a trailer behind you that has other gods. It says, for these few minutes, Lord, everything. But once I leave this place, I got my trailer here, and and I'm going to keep you first and foremost, but I got... That's before my face. You may think you're hiding it behind and you gather together on a worship and you sing and you pray and you do all these things, but I see before my face, you've got other gods. You are not loving me alone. Have we understood that commandment in that way? And then the second commandment is just to make sure there's no confusion. You shall not make for yourself to carved image. Or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. But isn't that what we are very prone to do? We're prone to worship created things. And what do we mean by worship? To attribute worth to created things. When in fact, what is the only thing that is worthy? What is the only thing that inherently possesses worth? God. He's the uncreated creator. Everything else in life, even good things, has worth that is derived from God. It is created by God and God has told us, this is what I've created it for. This is what it serves. This is how it serves my purposes in redemptive history. Whatever value my creation has... I've put the value in it. I've assigned it a value. I'm the only thing, God says, that inherently has value. I'm eternal. I was not created. I've always been. I am always self-sufficient and of ultimate worth. But what are we prone to do? To attribute ultimate worth to things that God created and the things that God had to assign worth to in order for it to even have worth. And the trouble with idolatry is twofold, and I think it's important for us to spend some time with this. Because idolatry is one of those things, we may hear this morning if God would be so pleased to visit with us and to expose us, open our eyes to see this. Idolatry is one of those things that in the moment we, by God's grace, may be horrified by, and I hope we will be but then you're just like me, we'll walk right out these doors and all of a sudden the horror of it goes away because once again we're face to face with our idols and they're alluring, they're attractive and the horror of idolatry will kind of flee. So we need to even while God is pleased to meet with us this morning to to think about why idolatry is troublesome. And there's two things we could say. First of all, Idols are troublesome, one, because they cannot deliver. They just simply cannot deliver. The idols that we erect for ourselves, whether they be physical things, recreation, entertainment, jobs, money, or whether they be invisible things in the heart, whatever the idol is, it can't deliver. Now, what do we do with our idols? We trust in them, we hope in them, we love them. We expect them to bring lasting joy. But I bet if you think back upon past idols you've had in your life, you've just kind of evolved onto bigger idols. But if you think back on past idols, you'll see, well, there's a reason I don't idolize those things anymore. Why? It couldn't satisfy. Even if it got your hands on it, it did not satisfy or fulfill what you thought it would. And so you've moved on to something else. Idols are empty. Because, why? Let's just be very clear. Because they are not God. It doesn't do me any good to say to myself, Idols are empty, idols are empty, idols are empty, because my, my heart wants the idols. Actually, what my heart wants is God. It's just in rebellion to it. The idols are empty because they are not God. And that's what we have to preach to our own hearts. The trouble with idols is they are not God. And therefore, they are incapable of meeting our deepest needs and our expectations. But what do we do? We heap up our expectations and our desires upon these idols only to have them crumble, only to see they can't stand up to the weight. Now, I doubt that many of us in this room are struggling with the idolatry of the heart like the second commandment. Thou shalt not bow down to a carved image. Um, I I, I don't want to discount it, but if that's the case, that's certainly included here. But I'm guessing in this room probably it takes a more subtle variety that we need to be aware of. I do know this. Every one of us are struggling with the idolatry of the heart. We may not be bowing down before a carved image, but that doesn't make us any better because every one of us are, us, I said us, are struggling with idolatry of the heart. Our hearts are bowing down to another idol. How easy it is for us to look at things in the world and for our hearts, to grab hold, for our heart to say, hmm, I've never seen this thing before. I never even knew this thing existed, but all of a sudden, I can't live without it. All of a sudden, how in the world did 2,000 years of history go on without this thing? I must have this thing. Or everybody else has it, and I don't. And I want it, I want it, I want it. Maybe I've never wanted it before, but just the mere fact that somebody else has it, I want it, I want it, I want it. The heart is always just looking for something to worship. Let us not be among those this morning who deny this. The whole reason we find this exhortation, worship God, in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, Is because idolatry is a problem for those seven churches. And what do those seven churches represent? Every church in every age. We are the seven churches. Their struggles are our struggles. And we're calling God a liar if we say, no, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's not me. And you don't know yourself. Men and women the world over throughout the church age worship health. Prosperity, possessions, they live for these things. It's not unique to our day. It's always been. People worship their careers. They worship the opportunity for status and prestige. They worship, I want a name. I want recognition. I want what everybody else has. I feel inferior without it. I want, I want, I want. I feel like a second-class citizen. I want Men and women, we worship government. We put our hope in it. We worship friends and family, good things. Many worship the church. They worship religious leaders. You can worship a church building. You can worship church programs. You can worship your favorite um, preacher on TV. You can worship your favorite author of Christian books. You can worship your favorite podcast person. How easy it is to love and worship these and various other things supremely. And we all do it. I tried to hit on a few things and maybe some of those resonated close to home. There are others that I didn't hit on. And we pile our expectations upon those things. Prestige, job, possessions, wealth, uh, the perfect family, friends, the perfect church, everything. We pile our hopes upon those things and we expect, I need those things. I've got to have those things for me. The problem is, even the good things among those things, they're not God. Everything, every idol was created by God. Its worth was assigned from him. It's drawn from him. It's not God. And therefore, not worthy of worship. Only God, we're told here in the text, is worthy of worship. Idolatry. Part of the message of the book of Revelation has been to expose the world's hostility against Christ and to expose fallen flesh, even for us. We live in a world where the finished work of redemption will produce glorification, where there will be no more sin. But in this time we live here, we, still have, we live in the flesh. And the flesh tempts us. And the, the heart can be a very tricky thing. And tell me if this sounds familiar to you. The heart can try to, your flesh can try to convince you that what God here is trying to expose idolatry in the heart, the flesh can tell you, oh, it's not that big a thing. For instance, if we take family and friends as an idol, might the flesh make a persuasive argument that says, wait a minute, Aren't those things important? Aren't you supposed... Doesn't the Bible itself say something about loving those people? Aren't they a blessing from God to be enjoyed? Shouldn't I invest in in, in family? Absolutely. Or let's take health. Well... Shouldn't I invest to be a healthy person to try to take care of me? This is the temple of the living God. If, Insofar as God indwells in me by his spirit, uh, shouldn't I invest in my health? Uh, what about wealth? I mean, uh, shouldn't I seek to be able to uh, to provide? And how else am I going to be able to, to be generous in the lives of others if I don't have myself? That's not wrong to pursue wealth. Is it wrong to prosper? Uh, what about government? I mean, I, God gave government. What do you mean I shouldn't I shouldn't trust in government? And love for the church. What do you mean I can make an idol out of the church? What's wrong with me wanting what I want? I want worship my way, in my place, with the things I've always grown up with, and it can't be church without that. What's wrong with that? Aren't these good things that the Bible talks about? To which we must say. All of that can be true. And you know this very well. It is never idolatry to think rightly and biblically. About those things. Family, friends, government, wealth, health, possessions, church. It's never wrong. In fact as Christians we are urged to think God's thoughts about those things. But there's the problem isn't it? That's the line of demarcation. What we try to do to convince ourselves, I've not made an idol out of this. We're not thinking God's thoughts about those things. We're thinking our own. Our own wants, our own desires. Are those things that become idols, can they be good things? Absolutely they can. But they become idols when we begin to think our own thoughts about them. And when we begin to reshape them and recreate them, not according to how the creator created them and how the creator embedded value in them and how the creator defined them to function, but when we take those very good things and we put our own spin on them, we put our own value on them, we put our own, now all of a sudden, they, I need those things, I want those things. And we know how quickly our heart can take those very good things and turn them into idols, right? Right? Those very good things turn to idols. How would you know? Number one, when you make them central and supreme. If you live a life and and just think, you fill in the blank on your idol. Family, friends, finances, wealth, possessions, government, church, you fill in the blank. Something that wasn't even, when you make that thing central and supreme, you've made it an idol. When you set those things on the throne of your heart, it's an idol. When those things become things, listen to my language here, you have to have to be happy. When those things become things that if you don't have them, you become bitter, frustrated, angry. You've made an idol out of them. If these are things you have to have in order to feel good, to be whole, to be satisfied, you've made an idol. If these are things that when they're taken away from you, if your family and friends are taken away from you, if your, your possessions are taken away from you, think of Job. If your health is taken away from you, again, think of Job. If your church is taken away from you, the way you've always done it, the, and you become bitter and angry and frustrated, you've made it an idol. If you become undone, you have now taken your eyes off of the Creator who has revealed Himself in the face of Jesus Christ as the all in all, the one in whom all satisfaction is found, the one in whom you must have or you die, the one in whom if you don't have, you will come undone before the face of this God. You're looking for anything other than Christ. You've made it an idol. That's the first problem with idolatry. It doesn't deliver. It can't deliver. And the second thing is simply, you cannot worship God in accord with Revelation 22, 8 and 9. Worship God. Worship God alone. You cannot worship God and an idol at the same time. It goes back to the uh, first commandment. shall have no other gods before me. God's not saying I must be first among all the other gods in your life. What did Jesus say? You cannot serve two masters at the same time. I demand you love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. What does that leave for anything else? Nothing. There's nothing there. So if our hearts and our lives are, are torn between loving Jesus and loving our idols, loving our family, our friends, our church, our money, our jobs, filling the, we're, we, we're guilty of idolatry, and we cannot worship God as He exhorts us to. So the folly of idolatry is twofold. Number one, it's a chasing after empty things that don't deliver. And number two, it's a forsaking of the one to whom all worship is due. Do you see that? And I belabor the point this morning. I may not even get to my other point, dead (laughs) gummit. I belabor the point this morning because idolatry is a problem for God's people today. For all of us. It's something that tempts all of us. And when this kind of idolatry is in the heart, it becomes destructive. Destructive to you as a person, destructive to your family, destructive to your uh, your relate, destructive to your church. Idolatry that pulls our hearts from being magnetically drawn to God, now to other things become more important. Now, we're never going to say that. I'm never going to say I've put these things over my love for God. But how we respond tells you everything. It's very destructive. Idolatry will consume you if it goes unchecked. unrepented of idolatry will demonstrate. Stay with me here. You have never loved God in the way he demands you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This morning, this is what I'm urging us to do to not rush past this exhortation. I could have taken all these five exhortations in one message. We could have hit them quickly. And you probably wish I had done that. (laughs) That's no benefit to us. We've got to feel the weight and the gravity of thus saith God. I've taken all this time to pull back the veil to give you a picture of Christ on the throne. And now... Don't rush past it. Are you living in light of this? Are you keeping that vision? Are you worshiping this one? Who in spite of everything you feel and see down here, in light of this vision, what do you have to fear? What is your concern? What could you possibly need for your battle down here that this vision has not of Jesus Christ has not given you everything you need? Worship God. I began this message by exposing that to worship God negatively would mean to forsake all idols. Why didn't I take that approach? Instead of just talking positively about worship, why didn't I just spend this whole time talking about worship? Because look at verses 8 through 10. See if you can recognize the idolatry. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God you see what he's saying there? Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. What we see happening to John there in verses eight and nine should sound somewhat familiar to us. That's not the first time John has made this massive mistake. Back in chapter 19, verse 10, the words of John were this, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What do we see here? Since chapter 19, 19, 20, 21, 22, twice in these closing passages, John stumbles in idolatry. He. The great apostle John, part of Christ's inner circle, was so overwhelmed with the glory of this angel messenger and the the splendor of the vision that was being delivered to him that he falls down to worship this angel. And twice on both occasions, John is rebuked with the words, You must not do that. Not get up, you shouldn't do that. Not, Oh, this is a bad decision. Oh, come on, come on, God deserves it. You must not do this. What's he saying? Never do this. Never bow down to worship anything that's not God. Never. Worship God. Worship God alone. Why would the book of Revelation conclude in this way? These glorious visions. Why would the book of Revelation conclude? Not with one, but with two instances of John slipping into the sin of idolatry. Any guesses? I heard it. To show if the Apostle John does this so easily. Seven churches representative of every church in every age know how easily you do it as well. We are all guilty of this. We are prone to stumble just like John did. This matter of idolatry, it's not just now showing up. Think back to the letters to the seven churches. Go back and read them this afternoon. How many of them is Christ walking in their midst and exposing the sin of idolatry? Your heart has drifted to another lover. Your heart has drifted Uh, You're not loving me with the love you had at first. You've drifted to something else. And those seven letters over and over consistently idolatry is being exposed and warned against and called upon to repent. Worship God. Return to your king. Repentance being person-oriented. You've been worshiping this one or these things. Repent. Worship God alone. The God alone is worthy of worship. What were those visions about? The 24 elders. The angels from from the four corners of the earth, what are they doing? They're worshiping who? The one on the throne, God himself. What is that all about? It's teaching us and reminding us, this is who God is. This is who your king is. Worship him alone. The book of Revelation has also been cleared to expose worldliness, right? We, we, We remember Remember the images and the pictures of worldliness that we see to show that the things of this world that attract you, that your soul looks at and sees, I must have this, I want this, I've got to have this. The book of Revelation over and over and over is showing us that the things of this world, that though seductive, though alluring, though our hearts are magnetically drawn to them, they're not God. And here at the conclusion of the book, we're reminded the sin of idolatry is always at hand. It's what we read about in Genesis chapter 4. Isn't that what God says? Sin is always crouching at the door. We can get very specific of that. The sin of pride is always crouching at the door. The sin of idolatry is always crouching at the door. The sin of unbelief is always crouching at the door. That's true for believers. And so we're exhorted. You who've seen this vision of Christ in beauty and majesty in victory, conquering all of your enemies, all of his enemies. Look at what he will do to bring about the end of all things for his honor and his glory. Worship him. Worship him alone. Here's the problem. It's a lot easier to preach about than it is to do, right? It's a lot easier to sit in here in just a few moments. Mm, That's right, that's right. Scripture's got me again. Scripture's been watching me. It sees me. It's done it. I'm guilty. I acknowledge it. I repent. Not going to do that again. I'll give you about five minutes once the service is over, and that may be very generous because my heart needs far less than that to drift towards idolatry. How in the world do we live out this exhortation? I think one great remedy to idolatry, and help me trace the line here. I'm going to start here where we're exhorted to be and trace it back to how do we get there. The one great remedy is to remain active in the worship of God alone. All right, how do you... How do you combat worshiping things? Well, then you be diligent, and I promise you three, four, five minutes in the morning is not going to to take it. You be diligent in worshiping God throughout your day. Worshiping God is the one way to remedy idolatry. And so it's helpful for us to examine our hearts and ask, where are the idols? What is it my heart is treasuring in? Is it something evil that God has said, thou shalt not do this thing. It could not be clearer. I need to repent and return to my king. Or maybe it's something good. Maybe it is family and friends and, and health and, and a right understanding of, of, uh, of, uh, of wealth um, or, or, or the church. But, but maybe I've, I've wanted it on my terms and my way. And and, and, and I, I must there, I must return to what's central because none of those things are God. I must have God. So you've got to recognize what those idols are. And I pray that's an exercise. I pray the Spirit is moving this morning to expose some of them, but I pray that even throughout the day you'll continue to seek these. But even more helpful than that is once you've identified those, let us remain active in the worship of the one true God, meaning you're going to have to fight to shift your focus and your attention and your worship away from those things to God. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to make hard decisions. You're going to have to do things that are uncomfortable, things you've not been doing, so that your heart will be turned to God himself. Now, even that can sound very simple, but it's not. So let's trace that down to the root. How do we get to where we want to be, which is turning our worship away from other things to God himself? Well, then we've got to get down to the root of the matter. Because I'll be real honest, my heart isn't always inclined to want to worship in this way. I'm like you. You're like me. Some days I just don't feel like it. And that's the breeding ground for idolatry, right? So how do I keep my heart and appetite and a thirst for this? You got to get down to the root of the matter. By daily doing what your flesh is telling you, I don't want to do today. I don't have time to do it today. And that is communing with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in his word. That's why I used the language of fight just a moment ago. This is a fight to worship God alone. And there is all the grace that you need necessary. Hear me on this. All the grace, I am not talking about you in your own strength. You're going to do something different this week. You're going to set aside time and energy. No, grace is the only way to do this. And grace is tied, please hear me, right here to this word. I'm inclined to say, and I'm not going to throw a blanket out on everybody, but I know it's true for me. My drift into idolatry is always tied to my lack of time here. And if you want to argue with me on that, we can talk about it after. But I am far inclined. Either one of two things. If our hearts have drifted into idolatry, one of two things is happening. Number one, you haven't touched this all week. Or if you have touched it, you've been reading it wrongly. Not, in, not to know God and to see Christ on every page, but you've been reading it as your kind of daily, give me my word of encouragement. It's for me. It's me, me, me. One of those two things is happening. And if you approach God's word as though it's all about me, it only makes sense that when you close this book, how are you going to live? It's all about me. The grace that we need to worship God alone is tied right here. It's in this book. The beauty of God is on display. The beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ is right here on display. To know Christ in his fullness, to be entranced by him, to be everything you need, to be captivated by him such that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Have you ever tasted of that before? I would hope that there have been seasons in your life to where you've been so in the word and so seeking the face of God in Jesus Christ, that those are not just song lyrics, that you've actually found that for a season, I can't explain it, but the things, the things that used to entice me, they just don't. He's enough. The problem is we don't, we don't continue in that. We drift away. Brothers and sisters, we cannot worship God alone. If your Bible remains closed between now and next Sunday, you just can't do it. We're not that good. We're not that spiritual. By God's grace, we're growing in sanctification. But then again, God's means of grace to grow us in sanctification is right here, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Worshiping God in this way is a product of your time in the word. Let me be very clear on this. Reading Pastor John MacArthur's sermons is not the same. Reading John Piper's daily devotional is not the same. Listening to Paul Washer's sermons on you is not the same. Feel free to supplement your daily walk with Jesus with those things. That is their walk with the Lord. That is not your walk with the Lord. That's not my walk with the Lord. You and I must set time aside, God's word open in hand. And even before I read a word, I turn my gaze upward. God, this is your word. It's the revelation of you, your glory in Christ Jesus. My heart will take this and make it all about me. My heart will take this and I won't even understand it. You are the great commentary on this text I'm about to read. You, I plead with you as I read word one of this verse I'm about to read. Teach me, open my eyes to see. And maybe even before I begin reading word two of that verse, I come to you again. Open my eyes to see. You've got to read God's spirit-inspired word by the power of the Spirit. Only then will we find our heart seeing who God is. Don't try to live upon John Piper's, John MacArthur's, Paul Washer's vision of who God is. That's theirs. And thank God, in my estimation, they are of great value to us. But the great temptation is that we let them do the walk for us, and we want to pretend it's ours. They're worshiping God. Again, I can't make value judgment. But there's a reason why I'm not worshiping in that way when I'm just feeding on their leftovers. God has called you and me as his elect people to worship him. In our daily devotionals, the author of Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together on the Lord's day. Come here each Lord's day seeking God himself. Here's my promise to you. If you come and your heart is full of idols and you come here, if your heart is full of idols of your family, your friends, your own church idol, I'm going to frustrate the dickens out of you. You're going to walk out of here and be angry with me, angry with the church. This is not a church. And we are always prone to drift. But here's my promise to you. By God's grace, with his help, if you come in here hungry for God, you're going to get him. We're going to sing songs that honor him. We're going to pray to him, the God who is. And we're going to preach his word in such a way. God is the main point of it. If you're hungry for God and worshiping him, you won't leave dissatisfied. That's not because of me or anything we do. That's because our hope is here and everything. We're praying God's word, singing God's word, preaching God's word, which is all about him. You want to worship God? We've got to be tied to this book. Well, didn't get near as far as I wanted. That's the second exhortation. It's not an option for us not to obey it. It's just not. But we struggle to obey it. I do too. I don't want this message to come across as, well, that guy up there, he's got it, and he's just trying to help us to get to where he's at. Mm, We're in this together. But it's not an option because of who Christ is and what he's revealed to us. He's worthy of worship. He will not allow us to give it to anything else.